Deb Curtis said, what I've come to understand is that the most important work I do to see a child in positive ways is within me. My guest today, Dr. Junlei Lee, will touch your heart and mind by opening a path for this work. He connects research to practice and awakens us to the power of relationships between educators and children, deepened by reflecting on the daily interactions in diverse early childhood settings. I am Sandy Lanes, an early childhood pedagogical consultant and student of the Reggio approach. I hope you enjoy my series of conversations with remarkable people who are changing the landscape of early childhood education and helping us all become Awakened to Reggio. So the first memory I have of our guest today was the beautiful way he spoke about Mr. Rogers in the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Since then, I've been moved by him many times while getting to know him through his webinars and online speeches. Dr. Junlei Lee is co-chair of the Human Development and Education Program and the Saul Zantz Senior Lecturer in Early Childhood Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. His work focuses on understanding and supporting the work of helpers, those who serve children and families on the front lines of education and social services. Working in orphanages, schools, youth programs from North America to China, he develops the simple interactions approach to help identify what ordinary people do extraordinarily well with children in everyday moments. Jun Lei delivers keynote addresses and workshops for child-serving professionals nationally and internationally, and serves on boards and advisory panels, including Child Care Aware of America, Parents as Teachers, Terrell Fund, Head Start National Center for Family and Community Engagement, and various initiatives at the U.S. Administration for Children and Families. Prior to his role at Harvard, Jun Lei served as the co-director at the Fred Rogers Center for Early Learning and Children's Media and is significantly influenced and inspired by the pioneering work of Fred Rogers, as am I. I'm so excited to meet you today, June Lei. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Sandy. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanna begin with the idea that everything I hear you speak about is rooted in relationships and the, the essential nature of relationships in relation to children and adults. Can you talk to us a little bit about your journey and what brought you to devoting your life to looking at the quality of interactions among children and the adults in their lives? I only have kind of clarity looking backwards because as many people who work through all these issues, when you're in the middle of it, it's never as clear. But I think the transition, the most important transition is to, to start by thinking about relationships merely as a means to the end, mm -hmm. right? To now understanding that, wait a minute, relationship is the end. It, it's not the end, but, but it is worthy in and of itself, right? So uh, early on, I was trained as a cognitive developmental researcher. So you're very focused on kind of uh, cognitive developmental outcomes, you know, school achievement and all those things. So um, these are the things that are policy relevant. 
these are the things that are quote unquote fundable, right? So, so naturally you start to make the assumptions that these are the worthy outcomes. And then you start to look at, well, what are the conditions that can help to produce these outcomes? And for example, uh, teacher-student relationships would be one of those conditions along with many others. So that's what I mean by a means to the end kind of an approach, right? Thinking about educational, health, employment outcomes, in long term, and then say, oh, relationship play a part in that. And in fact, I think much of our public policy, even in early childhood, still sounds like that, right? So when, when you hear the term, term like return on investment, so the idea isn't that relationship matter here and now, it's that, well, we want to invest in early childhood in these relationships because there's a larger quote unquote return on investment for society and something like that. I think all of that start to change for me when I was spending time in the classrooms, when I early on, I saw that, you know, what these elementary school children or middle school children, long after they forget the content of what they are being taught in class, whether it's science or engineering or whatever, I think what may possibly become part of them that that helped to shape them is the way they related to their teacher or the way their teacher related to them, right? And nobody's measuring that. Nobody probably can measure that. When you're in the classrooms, in the schools, you just start to have a sense that that may have a much bigger impact in shaping that human being than the particular content and worksheet that they might be doing. So I, that was in the beginning, I was starting thinking maybe maybe I was just wrong in thinking about relationships merely as a means to the end. And then this become much, much clearer around the time I was doing uh, work in orphanages with uh, very young children with disabilities. And that came about around the same time I became a parent and adopting two girls from the orphanages. And so looking at my girls development, post-adoption, and then working in the orphanages to look at the conditions of the orphanages. It, in that context, it almost made no sense, right? To think about, I wanna invest in relationship with these young children today because 20 years from now, there will be a return on investment for society. Like that, that means to the end thinking yeah. is, is not applicable. Particularly in the orphanage, right? So when you care for that child in that moment, whether that moment be diaper change or feeding and so on, that moment when that connection happens, that moment is worthy in and of itself. Like it doesn't have to be justified by a longer term outcome a year from now than on or 10 years from now. Was it, um, was it very and, difficult? for something that's not so quantifiable to, to really make that central to the work that you were doing in, in the society that we're in? I think it's an ongoing challenge, not just for me, but for, for every advocate, for every re researcher, I would say for every practitioner and caregiver who, who wants to help people understand that the moment matter. I know I, didn't really have fully that sense until I see in the orphanage environment, both what the absence of relationship looks like, feels like, 
and at the same time sees what these sparks of relational connection look like. Like, you know, you almost have to see both at the same time to know that that moment uh, matters. A while ago, I had a colleague from the Erickson Institute who visited Reggio and he, he was saying, you know, he went there and he observed and he thought it was wonderful, but he with his very kind of American lens was asking the folks that read you, like, how do you evaluate the impact of what you do? And um, he, at least the way he recounts the story, he said his colleagues at read you was kind of a little um, confused by the question <laughs> and said that uh, here, you know, we focus on doing what is right right now. And, and I always remember this phrase, right, of doing what is right, right now. And, and so, you know, even when I think about the orphanage work, uh, we watch the caregivers, you know, in the middle of diaper change or feeding, like in that moment, you can tell when they are doing what is right, right now. They may not know, right, all the sciences that would link this moment to the future moments. They would not know how to measure the impact of what they're doing right now. But there's no doubt, like when you actually see people together, particularly adults with very young children, when you see them together, you have no doubt when they're doing what is right right now. And it really connects so well to the, the beautiful concept of deep and simple that you speak about and, and that your Simple Interactions program is based on. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The simple interactions work, and for any listener who might be interested, um, you can go to the website, simpleinteraction.org, and the website is a completely free public domain resource, and from the get-go, uh, we wanted to make sure that it remains so, because we thought that everything we know, uh, we learned from caregivers and practitioners. So it would be ridiculous to make something that costs something for caregivers and practitioners to access later on. So it was very important that we make it a free and public resource. And it's it's a collaborative effort. Um, our, our other collaborators, including Dr. Dana Winters, uh, who's currently the executive director of the Fred Rogers Center out in Pittsburgh, and uh, Dr. Tom McKeever, who's a... Um, um, youth development uh, professor at University of Pittsburgh, as well as many other colleagues, I think, across the United States, Canada, um, and in China. But the Simple Interactions work started with a very kind of simple origin, which was what we were just talking about. So how do you help people see the moment and talk about the moment as if the moment is worthwhile, right? So as opposed to, let me describe kind of a traditional practice in describing uh, relational interactions, which is that we issue some kind of a guide, some kind of a standard that says, you know, here's the teaching standard, right? Or here's the early childhood standard. So we're going to go into the classroom or we're going to check the boxes to see if a teacher or a caregiver is aligned with the standard. And then we'll tell the teacher that if you align with these standards, you know, a year from now on, five years from now on, this child is going to, you know, be school ready and so on. So, I mean, that's, that's in a nutshell, kind of what a traditional approach is. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to focus on the moment for its own sake. But at the same time, we didn't want to create a check 
box list, right? A list that's, you know, let's say three pages long with 20, 40 items. So that someone who just come off feeding a baby and come over and, you know, have to think about, you know, did I check off that? Did I check off that? Did I speak to the baby when I'm feeding the baby? You know, just all the strategies versus the value. That's right. That's right. So what, what we were trying to figure out from the very beginning is what is the simplest but most universal way to describe any human interaction anywhere in the world? Of course, we didn't start off thinking like that. We were just thinking, what's the simplest way to describe the most mundane interactions in an orphanage? Yeah. Um, so, so that we can go from orphanage to orphanage, we can go from morning to night, no matter what the moment is, there's a frame for people to describe it. Later, it turns out that this little frame that we developed ended up being helpful as a lens to look at these moments almost anywhere. That's the Simple Interactions uh, work. And I'll very briefly describe the lenses that we use, as well as we engage caregivers and teachers use. So this wasn't meant as a tool that researchers come in and score you or something. There's no score whatsoever. This was a tool, in fact, that was shared with orphanage caregivers, with childcare providers, with teachers, with social workers, um, no matter who they are, no matter what their educational credential is. The, at the heart of it is the simple interaction tool. It's 12 little pictures. Uh, a lot of times we have very few words associated with it, but it gets at four little I think, lens with which you can look at an interaction. One is the sense of connection between people, right? So you can, you know, you can can watch a pair of strangers at a bus station or on a blind date. And even if you can't hear what they're saying, like we have a gut instinct to, to see if they're connected or not. And that's pretty much what that connection dimension is. And then two is reciprocity, like whether or not whatever is happening is going back and forth, right? And I don't mean like in a mechanical way, right? There, There's a lot of back and forth, even for example, Sandy, right now on a Zoom call, like, yeah. you know, if, if, if the listeners are hearing, they're hearing my voice, but from my perspective, like everything I say, I can see your acknowledgement, right? With your eyes, with your smile, with your nod. And so that creates this reciprocal interaction between us. The third one, we eventually ended up calling kind of inclusion. It obviously had to do with the fact that we started off working primarily with children with disabilities, but it's so much more than disability. So anytime you have a group, right? So even let's say a home visitor goes into a family, works with the mom and the baby and the dad is nearby. Like anytime you have this kind of a group, you have to think about the inclusion of everyone in that group in the interaction. So, so the quality of relationship is measured not by the best interaction that happens between two people, but in fact, measured by the interaction that happened to quote unquote, the least among us who, who for one reason or another may often be excluded or neglected or something like that. These three dimensions then build up towards the the last dimension, which we call opportunity to grow, which is really grounded in kind of any kind of a basic learning theory all the way back to uh, Lev Vygotsky's kind of zone of proximal development. It's this essentially this idea that in any moment, any moment of human interaction is a developmental moment. 
which means it has the potential to support the development, not only of the child, sometimes of the adult as well. But in order for something to be developmental, there has to be kind of a developmental challenge, right? You have to like push somebody to go beyond where they are now, but just the push doesn't do it, right? Like something else have to support and scaffold that development. So in between the scaffold and the challenge, that little zone, whether we call it zone of proximal development, I'm sure it's been called many other names, but to be able to see that zone playing out, right? And then to be able to see how connection, inclusion, reciprocity all come together to make that development happen. So these are the four lenses. And I hope you know you and, and, and our listeners can see, like none of these are prescriptive, right? I'm not saying like, this is how you should connect or this is how you should reciprocate. That's not the goal. Uh, we have no idea like how an orphanage caregiver ought to reciprocate in feeding a little baby with cerebral palsy. Like we would have no idea, but that caregiver knows because that caregiver has been with the baby day in and day out. So it's just important for us and for the caregiver to be able to look at their own interactions and go, ah, this is how I'm reciprocating with that baby. I'm doing it in a way that's uniquely suited for that baby, uniquely suited for an infant with cerebral palsy. I'm not doing it in the way everyone else is doing it, but, but I'm doing it in a way that works and, and I see it now. That was the goal of developing the Simple Interactions wow. work. The wide way of looking at this really honors the people who are on the ground doing this work. For the listeners today who would be interested in thinking more about those kinds of moments, what would an entry point be for them? Like, what would you say to them when they walk into their classroom today to, in, in order to start thinking about these kinds of lenses? I have kind of a theoretical response and uh, a practical one. So the theoretical one is to first observe and think about what relational needs do children have around us. And I don't mean relational needs like I don't just mean the relational needs as in, oh, that child needs a friend. I don't mean on that grand sense, right? I mean, like if a child who sits in a corner, who looks longingly at a group of children who are playing, right? And who wants to be part of that, but doesn't quite know how, right? Like if you just see that out of the glimpse of the corner of your eye, right? Like in that moment, you're like, that child really like to be part of something. Yeah. Now, it, it's not the same as you go over and go, well, come on over and join this group. That child may be scared to death to join that group. Maybe what that child needed, right, is to be able to just build a, a, a small connection with you, the teacher. And then once establishing that level of comfort, maybe you, the teacher, can then scaffold the child towards other children or something like that. But on this exact same side, you can have a child who, you know, seem quite content to focus on their own, but it doesn't mean that child wants to be alone. There's a difference between a child wanting to some time to themselves and the child 
wanting to be alone. So for the child who wants intently focus on something, I think you might find that what that child would be really interesting relationally is someone to walk over and just watch them for a minute to, to, to pay attention, to know that what they're working on interests someone else also. You don't even have to say a word and, and just your physical presence next to the table for a minute and then you move on. And then you mention something, you know, an hour later at a later part of the day. That may be all, the, all that child wants and needs relationally at that moment. As we look around us, if we, if we just pay attention, we can start to see the relational needs between people and, and, and just what children need. The next part is to think about the different ways that we can meet some of that relational need within our capacity, whether we are a parent or teacher and so on. And that's when kind of something like the simple interactions tools come in. Helen Keller in the 1950s kind of published kind of a book of ideas, ideas of her own, as well as ideas that she took from other people that she find um, inspiring. And, and the book was called Open Doors. And, and the very first page of the book was this quote about sometimes I, I look, you know, so long at the closed door that I forget to see the door that has been opened for me. In relational interactions, we're trapped in the one window, one door that we can't open. So for example, uh, if we're struggling to help a child read, for example, and the child is really frustrated and resisting it. So we just keep banging our head at the door, right? Like, why can't you read? Or why wouldn't you read? Oh, where we're trying to get a child to express their feelings constructively, and we can't get there. We just keep banging our door on that. I think part of the simple interactions to the, the, the four dimensions is, is just a reminder that there are many doorways open. I'll take the example of a child who hates to sit down and read. So in my head, I would go, okay, so the opportunity to grow when it comes to reading, for the moment, that door like wouldn't open for, for us. Like, is there something we can do that connects with the child? Is there something the child likes to do that would allow us to reciprocate with the child? Is there something that the child may like to do with other children? We can create an inclusion for that child. And, and so just to find a door into that relationship. And so sometimes in this metaphor, we say, once you're in that room, right? Once you're in through another window, you can open the door from the inside <laughs> rather than banging on the outside. So, so this idea that there are more than one way, always, always more than one way, right? To build a relationship or, or to find a window that's open. Early on in our work, right? We see orphanage caregivers working with children with profound disabilities, right? So in a typical world, you would think about these children as like, I have no way of connecting, right? So here's a child, let's say with severe cerebral palsy, 
along with other developmental disabilities. So the child doesn't seem to hear you. The child doesn't seem to be able to have proper facial expressions in response to you. Um, the child certainly cannot speak. The child can't gesture, right? So all the doors that we're typically used to building relationship with are closed. So when we see caregivers finding a way to open up that connection, right? If, if that could happen, then of course it could happen like anywhere. It speaks so strongly to the image of the child that we think so much about from the Reggio perspective, this idea that we have to look more widely at our roles with children. What you're doing really helps prioritize that for us as educators, and, and hopefully it gives us the space to do the things that many of us know we should be doing, but maybe feel pressured not to be doing in our practice. I was trained as an engineer. So I approached the work initially in a very technical way. <laughs> like I think of this as a technical challenge, like how do you develop a tool that describes so on and so forth. But as it goes on, um, the work opened up beauty to me. And even though I couldn't quite see it in the very beginning, I remember more than a decade ago, the very first time we did a simple interactions workshop with um, rural foster parents who are taking care of children with disabilities in China. And, and these are farmers, you know, whose edu educations usually end of elementary school or, or middle school. And, you know, so we didn't have any PowerPoints or anything, you know, we just had this rudimentary drawing of the simple interactions tool um, uh, way back then. And again, I was preceding it as an engineer researcher and so mm -hmm. on. But, but what made the difference is that we used videos, uh, field videos of these uh, rural caregivers themselves. So we, we, we didn't bring a demonstration video from the United States and say, this is how you take care of a child with disability. We, we showed only videos of the farmers themselves taking care of the babies. Yeah. But these videos were so beautiful, right? Not only to the farmers, but in the last decade to anyone that we have ever show, shown it to. Um, but I remember at the end of that first workshop, you know, this was the first time I've experienced a workshop like that. And this is the first time the farmers ever experienced a workshop like that. And a, a local kind of uh, physician who's been caring for the babies and also supporting the foster parents, like we walked out of the conference room and she just turns to me and she said, you know what all this reminds me of? She said, it reminds me of this saying um, that I've been thinking about for a while, which is that there's no shortage of beautiful things in the world. What we need are eyes that can see them. And, and I was just like, I was just astounded, right? And, and I'm just like, oh, thank you. Like, thank you so much for like putting words to something that I'm feeling, you know, as I'm listening to the farmers talking about their interaction, like, you know, so, so, I, so I always remembered that, right? It's not so much like, I, I, I'm absolutely sure that it's not the simple interactions work that is beautiful, but, but what it did is it created this opportunity for people to talk about the beautiful things that they are seeing um, in their world. And then I think that comes kind of to number three, I think, you know, in response to your question, uh, you know, one, we talk about one, right, to see the relational needs around us, two, to find more than one way, right, to, to, to kind of open the window and get in. 
And the third one is something, Sandy, you said earlier, which is that how do we turn an affirmative, appreciative eye towards not the children, but the adults who are engaged in these relational practices. And I think so often uh, teachers, caregivers, parents don't have much opportunities to to receive this authentic appreciation affirmation, like not lip service appreciation, but authentic appreciation. So if I think of a parent or a teacher, like where do we get this from, right? I think first and foremost, we need to hear from our peers. So we, we need to, it needs to come from people who knows how difficult this caregiving and teaching is. And so who can appreciate the challenges, but who also recognize our strength. Um, two is it needs to come from people who sometimes have supervision, coaching, mentoring capacity uh, with us, right? Like it, it helps to be affirmed with people we trust and we think are credible. Uh, and lastly, and that may be the hardest of all, it needs to come from ourselves to ourselves. Mm. And, and I think that is incredibly difficult because I know that as a parent, I know that hearing from parents, I know that as a teacher, it's so often that we want to do more, right? Instinctively, we want to do more. We want to be more. We know we're not perfect, but we really expect ourselves to be. So we're the, almost the, afraid the, not to be, right? Or that's right. Look that's at right. ourselves that way. Yeah, that's right. Because we love our children. We love our students yeah. and we feel like they deserve nothing but the best. And therefore we feel the pressure to, to, to be there. Um, it's, it's part of this is good, right? Part of this is this instinct of being a caregiver, being a teacher, being a helper who feels like I want to do everything possible. But part of it, along with kind of the larger world we live in, is this perpetual feeling of inadequacy, and which for some lead to burnout, um, depression, and so on. I have been thinking a lot, particularly during the pandemic, uh, about this phrase, good enough. Hmm. Like, what does it take for us to believe in the good enough versus the perfect, right? And and I have reasons, uh, increasingly have reasons to believe that most of us, when we're intentional, when we're effortful, uh, we are in fact good enough. And, and good enough isn't, isn't something like, well, let's not be perfect, let's just be good enough. It's not like that, it's just to know that what you have done is what the child needed. Increasingly, I feel like the children never needed us to be perfect. They, they needed us to be good enough. If perfect is what it takes for optimal development, then there's no hope for optimal development. <laughs> it's not this blind belief, like I'm just gonna keep doing the exact same thing every single day and I'm good, good enough. That, that would be a blind belief, right? But, but, but to be able to see the meaning of these moments and to know in the moment, even in the absence of long-term return on investment, to know in the moment that you're doing what is right right now. Like that to me is at the core of that good enough feeling. And if we can somehow internally to ourselves, uh, interpersonally to our friends, to our peers, to our colleagues, 
And if we happen to be in a position to teach, to supervise, to coach, to convey that message to the people that we're supporting, if somehow we can do that, I think we can collectively do much good um, for the development of children and for the development of the adults who are helping the children. Yeah, this feels like a parallel process that the way that you're coming to the adults is very much the way we want adults to come to children, to look at them in ways where we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for the beauty and the effort and, and, and the thinking. I'm, I'm also thinking about something I heard you say that I just loved, which is that we in education are having to, to build bridges even while we're walking on them. And, and I think that, you know, all of this, it's not like we can just learn it all before we step in and then be it. It's something that we're really progressively, dynamically making part of ourselves and in, in education. And I think it, this really speaks to that. You've had so many unique experiences, seeing children in different kinds of settings, different places around the world. And I know that you're very passionate about the concept of equity in education. How can we understand this concept in a deeper way in order to better serve children and families to, to create more and ensure more equitable outcomes? When my colleagues and I reflected back, we realized that much of the Simple Interactions work took place in... I would say traditionally low resource communities. And it started off, of course, with the orphanage environment. And then when we worked in the uh, United States, we worked in low income neighborhoods, um, uh, childcare uh, settings. And then later on, when we started to work in public schools, we worked not in the quote unquote high-performing public schools, but in fact, in public schools and communities that historically, you know, people would look upon them as struggling schools and so on. We wondered, on one hand, right, this idea of relationships is universal, right? You can be anywhere in the world and you need relationships and so on. So what is it, what is distinct about this relational perspective uh, for communities that lack access to resources and that are inequitable, right? I think what we've come to are three things, uh, which I think parallels to the three steps that I was talking about earlier about what uh, we can do, right? One is to recognize that in inequitable situations and contexts. What children lack is an equitable access to relational opportunities, oh. right? The most drastic being the orphanage. Every child, right, deserve the kind of family-like, community-like caregiving. Orphanage traditionally doesn't offer that. Orphanage is the extreme end of inequity. Like, in the orphanages increasingly around the world, often children have enough to eat. They even have medical care. But the one care that they don't get, right, is the kind of relational care. 
But if you think about for years, advocates of uh, inclusion of students with disabilities, what do they lack? They lack the access of these typical relational opportunities that other children enjoy. They're excluded from it. If you think about racial inequity, right, or gender inequity, if you look at the research of what happens to African-American children or female students in math cl classrooms and so on, they get a different kind of relational interactions in the school and with the teachers than other children do, right? So I, I often can think of much of the inequalities around this. When it comes to children's development, it comes down to ultimately it meant that children did not have equitable access to yeah. relational opportunities. So the moment that becomes the lens, right, then immediately go to how do we make sure, right, children who do not have equitable access to these relational opportunities get access to these mm -hmm. relational opportunities, which is why, for example, in our four dimensions in the simple interaction tool, one of them is inclusion, right? It's not enough to have good interactions. It's imperative that that quality of interactions has to be accessible to the least among the group, right? Not just to the most clever, most interactive child. Number two, immediately coming from that is we now need equitable recognition of what high quality relational practices look like in culturally and socially diverse settings, right? So to the extent that children in marginalized communities need high quality relational access. It's not the case that let's just take children out of these communities and put them in what we think is high quality relational practices. In fact, what you often find is, you know, whether you go into um, Native American reservations, whether you go into rural communities, urban communities, if you really looked, you find ample examples of high quality relational practices yeah. in these communities by teachers, by neighbors, by crossing carts, um, by the elders in the community. And the part of the recognition is to honor, to respect the relational opportunity that already exists in culturally and socially diverse settings. But two, instead of thinking about replacing them in, in supplanting them um, or, or standardize dizing them, the goal is really to invest resources to strengthen them, strengthen them where they are. And then the third part is it naturally flows from that. If you are willing to recognize socially and culturally diverse relational practices, then the natural next step is you have to recognize the caregivers and practitioners in those communities who are in fact practicing that. So the third equity is equitable support for the relational caregivers and practitioners, right? Wow. Making sure that we offer our respect, not just respect emotionally, but respect in terms of compensation, in terms of credentialing, um, in terms of even just how we talk in a professional development session, to treat people as if they already know a lot of what children need. You've said so many inspiring things today. Teachers, the helpers today are really going through a, a very challenging time. It's sometimes overwhelming, the constant changing. And, and I'm wondering, 
could you just give us one final message that might inspire them to keep going in this work, this great sacred work that they do in the, and, and what keeps you going? I think particularly during this, this very difficult, uncertain, almost interminable kind of pandemic where parents, teachers, everyone struggles, nobody feels like they're doing enough, even when they feel like they're doing everything they can. I hope that we can help ourselves and help each other to believe that what we are doing can be good enough for our children's development. A good enough teacher is one where when you are with the child, the student, you give yourself honestly and fully, even if it just it's just a minute, okay? Even if that's all you have, but you made that minute count, you showed up, you were present. In the end, I, I, I hope that by trusting, not even just believing, in trusting the good enough that we can do, that we can allow ourselves to gradually grow into the good enough teacher, the good enough parent, even as our children are growing into the good enough human beings. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us. I'm just so thrilled for our listeners that they get to hear all this inspiring thinking that you're sharing today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Sandy. And um, it's, a, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation like that, or just even to take the time, create the space so that we can take a step away from all the busyness of what we think we have to do. And ju just to be able to think a little bigger about yeah. about about the world we're in and, and the people that we care about, um, professionals as well as colleagues and friends. And and I very much appreciated your questions and, and the way I think you cared about the questions, which then makes it so, I think, powerful for me to dig deeper, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and think deeper about the meaning of these questions and, and, and what these questions mean uh, in the lives of, of, of so many people. If you would like to know more about my wonderful guests or the Reggio approach, please go to my website at sandylanesconsulting.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.